drive out a bit from town, where the view up the valley is unobstructed, and you can see the lights of what appears to be a great city in a magnificence that reaches skyward. That comes from the front page of the August 20th, 1942 issue of the Powell Tribune, the daily newspaper from a town in northern Wyoming. If one were to continue driving toward that distant light, they'd find that the light wasn't being emitted from some Los Angeles or New York-type metropolis emerging from the midst of the Wyoming landscape. That magnificent city was the Heart Mountain Relocation Center, one of the 10 internment camps where the U.S. government detained Japanese Americans from 1942 to 1945, the final years of World War II. Thank you for tuning in to Home is Where the Heart Is. I'm Bella. I'm Amber. And I'm Sophie. And with the help of Sophie's grandfather, Ken Kato, who, as a nine-year-old, was interned at Heart Mountain with his family, we're going to take you through the history of Heart Mountain and an account of life inside the camp. We'll hear about how Japanese families interned there met unthinkable loss with resilience and ingenuity. They crafted new definitions of home by building familiar structures within the camp's confines. The camps didn't just have residences. They also had sports teams, schools, social clubs, and more. Can we actually think of them as cities? What is at stake in even asking that question? My name is Ken Cato. I live in San Pedro, California. My birth date, I was born on November 7, 1932. Thank you for joining us, Grandpa. Before we get into the history of Heart Mountain, let's talk a little bit about the language people use when they describe Japanese internment. Relocation centers were built by the U.S. government to detain Japanese Americans of the Issei generation and the Nisei generation. The Issei generation are those born in Japan who first immigrated to the United States. The Nisei generation were their children, second generation Japanese Americans who were born in the States. All Japanese Americans were subject to relocation and internment from 1942 through 1945. When we go back through newspaper articles, policies, and other documents from that period, we see the Japanese American population depicted in two ways. Ways that the media and the U.S. government used to justify their imprisonment. The first justification reflects the nation's wartime hysteria and widespread anti-Japanese sentiment resulting from Japan's position as an enemy Axis nation during World War II. Terms appear like Japs, Orientals, and other derogatory language as the U.S. government and media work jointly to reinforce their largely fabricated reports that Japanese Americans were guilty of treason and espionage. A local newspaper called The Enterprise from Cody, Wyoming, one of the town's closest to Heart Mountain, announced in its May 27, 1942 headline that 10,000 Japs to be interned here. The article explained that the relocation centers were being built, quote, on the grounds of military necessity, and that, quote, evacuees would be under the strictest of military guards. Beyond these claims to be saving America from the enemy within, there was another justification for the internment of Japanese Americans. Some argued that Japanese Americans benefited from their forced relocation. They referred to as refugees, living in safety and comfort, and as vacationers, enjoying their stay at a long-term hotel. Simultaneously, Wyoming newspapers reassured the American public 
that the Japanese population would be strictly and securely contained. They also portrayed the relocation camps as happy vacation towns, obscuring blatant violations of civil rights. A front-page headline of the Tribune called Heart Mountain a haven that would, quote, be their habitation and refuge for the duration of the war. Of course, there's a tension between these two renderings of the Japanese-American population. Why would you build a vacation destination for people allegedly conspiring against the U.S. war effort? But when we put side by side these two ideas about who Japanese Americans were, the primary intention of internment comes to light. As the Powell Tribune wrote, Japanese Americans were, quote, industrious, substantial citizens who are not in any way harmful to the American war effort. But these, quote, peaceful, hardworking people of Oriental origin had been infiltrated by that element of Japanese who are sympathetic with the Mikado's realm in this very serious war with America. One could not expect military and government officials to differentiate among all the Japanese. So, in other words, by detaining all Japanese Americans, the U.S. could be sure to protect its other citizens from the handful of Japanese who were supposedly conspiring to sabotage the U.S. war effort. Of course, the claims that any Japanese Americans were committing these forms of treason were unfounded. Xenophobic, racially charged beliefs and fear overpowered the conditional access to the rights of American citizenship for 20,000 Japanese people. People of Japanese descent, including non-naturalized immigrants, naturalized immigrants, and American-born citizens were also interned for their alleged espionage. The federal government claimed that people of Japanese descent living in the United States needed to be contained and surveilled through imprisonment and relocation for greater American safety and sanctity. We mention all this because it's important to understand these Japanese Americans were subjected to relocation programs not as refugees or traders, vacationers or spies, but as U.S. citizens entitled to the same rights as the rest of the population. The U.S. imprisoned citizens within their own country and deemed them traitors. We draw our language from the accounts of Heart Mountain's residents, who often refer to themselves as internees, detainees, and inmates. With that said, let's lay out a historical timeline and talk about the creation of Heart Mountain. Without addressing past events and the particular language we use to describe them, our history remains separate from us, cleansed, palatable. Often, individuals seek to distance themselves historically from the mistreatment of migrants, genocide, and disruption of communities. So how did Japanese internment come to be? On February 19, 1942, two months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, emboldening the Secretary of War to, quote, exclude any and all persons, citizens, and aliens from designated areas in order to provide security against sabotage, espionage, and fifth-column activity. After designating much of the West Coast as a military zone, the FBI emphasized that people of Japanese descent posed a threat to American safety post-Pearl Harbor. After, the FBI was authorized to arrest enemy aliens, although German and Italian residents were not relocated nearly to the same extent as Japanese residents. 2,000 Issei were then arrested, 
the Navy ordered all Japanese-owned fishing boats to be beached to prevent them from aiding Japanese ships. All assets of Japanese nationals were frozen. Issei and Nisei, Japanese Americans, were sent to assembly centers, then to relocation centers, staffed by the War Relocation Authority, or the WRA. These centers were often unused fairgrounds, racetracks, or warehouses, where families had to camp out in the interim period before being transported to a relocation camp. Grandpa, what was your experience with this initial forced relocation? Okay, yes, uh, we, I lived with my parents and my grandfather and my brother in Los Angeles, and uh, my, my father had a uh, business. He had a billiard parlor. He had a home that we lived in, and he also had uh, recently bought a uh, apartment house. And then the... Uh, war started December 7, 1941, and a few days after the war started, the, the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, came to uh, pick up my father for some reason. My dad, he was not, he didn't talk too much, so we didn't know exactly the reason why uh, he was taken. The responsibility of the business and the home and stuff was uh, left up to my mother, and she really wasn't that aware of uh, what was going on, but uh, still, she had to take care of everything, and uh, we were in Los Angeles for, I don't know, about three months before they took us to a relocation center. But anyway, my mother had to take care of all the business, uh, and... Uh, she really didn't know what to do because the government never helped us. Uh, so she found a real estate man or a real estate man came over and uh, he said he's willing to help us. So my mother had no other choice. So she kind of left it up to him and uh, all of her uh, home furnishing and uh, furniture and whatever she had, she took and put it into the attic in the business and then about three months later approximately i think uh, we were taken to a relocation center in pomona they had uh, fixed up horse barn that's where we stayed you know and, it, <laughs> and you could smell the horse horse smell when you went there we were there for maybe i don't know maybe for about six months while they were building up the uh permanent uh, relocation center in Wyoming. And then uh, maybe six months after we went to Pomona, we went, they put us on a train and we went to Wyoming. The train that we went on, you know, they pulled all the shades so we couldn't see the outside. It took maybe about two, three days for us to get finally get to Art Mountain. The thing that we were able to take on our own was whatever my mother was able to get into a suitcase, so mostly clothes and stuff like that, so she really wasn't able to take too many things. And like I said, she stored everything into the uh, attic of our parlor. What followed was a monumental loss of property, personal objects, and assets. The FBI mandated that Japanese Americans dispose of all contraband items, namely radios, cameras, and other technology that could somehow be used for their alleged fifth column activity. 
Many families destroyed other belongings that might be used to further villainize them, items that represented their Japanese heritage, like books, heirlooms, and clothing. They lost not only their material possessions, but their connections to culture, community, customs, geography, and much more that was rooted in their home cities. Along with this incredible loss, I can't imagine the shocking transition from city life in California, where most of the incarcerated came from, to rural Wyoming, where the WRA had built the skeleton of their new prison city. There were state-certified schools and small businesses under WRA control. Internees had wages and jobs, although those too were heavily restricted and undercompensated. White nurses hired by Heart Mountain made about $150 a month, whereas employed internees made about $19 a month. And the camp itself was laid out like an army camp, with repetitions of the same barrack structure. The War Relocation Authority had military members assemble the barracks hastily, some in as little as 58 minutes, out of cheap, untreated beams that shrank in the dry and extreme climate of the region, creating gaps in the walls. Bill Hosokawa, an internee who went on to become a prominent journalist, wrote that, quote, The Wyoming wind had an uncanny knack for finding the smallest cracks in walls and creating uncomfortable drafts in barracks. The barracks were about 20 feet wide by 120 feet long. Each barrack had six rooms for six different families. And uh, all it was was a room. Our room was, the end rooms were the small ones, you know, for couples, maybe for two people. And then the next uh, one next to that was the largest one. By large, it was maybe about 24 or by 20. And then in, in the middle, two was for families of four. And those were just a square room, 20 by 20, I think. It was maybe about 30 blocks or so, I think. Uh, I know there was a block 28, so that was, I think, one. I remember block 28. I was in block six. So each block had, uh, I think, 24 barracks. There was an upper block and a lower block. Upper block had 12 barracks, I think, and the lower block had 12 barracks. And in between was a pretty good-sized space, and nothing was there. So... Um, if you could imagine the, the, the barracks lined up six next to each other on one side and then a mess hall and a toilet in between and on the other side another six barracks. And then that was either the upper block and then the lower block had the same type of arrangement. So later on, um, they dug a trench in the middle and filled it with water and made an ice rink out of it. So in the wintertime, you know, everyone went ice skating there. Now, I don't know where they got the ice skates from, but uh, maybe the government furnished that. Similar to what happens in refugee camps, there was a division of labor and livelihoods. Intern residents took on different roles that reflected their past experience and professions to satisfy personal and, quote, city needs. There are farmers, cooks, and firefighters, and eventually teachers, event organizers, group leaders, elected representatives, and much more. They had much of what other American cities had, 
but they were still very much detainees, and their reality as prisoners loomed over them. Decisions ultimately lay at the hands of guards and camp officials. There was an enforced hierarchy between authorities and detainees. Communication with the outside world was heavily restricted. People were crammed and privacy was non-existent. There was an elected government that oversaw camp functions. Punishment for crimes that occurred in the camps could result in imprisonment in a normal federal or state prison. Guards holding inward-pointing machine guns surrounded the detainees, and a barbed wire fence enclosed them, exemplifying the extremely hostile prison environment of this unique city. Yet at 10,000, the population of Heart Mountain would make it the third largest city in Wyoming at the time. Even with the looming and deterring prison environment, the camps had systems, facilities, amenities, governance, and layouts that resembled that of a municipality. Little by little, the imprisoned internees impressively nurtured this military-constructed camp into a living city, a place that felt normal and comfortable, yet was complex enough to meet their basic needs. They had a movie theater that was a barrack. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I don't remember, but uh, they, there was some place where they used to grow vegetables and things, you know, plot of uh, land over there that they converted and made a big vegetable garden. And get this, the land that Hart Mountain was built on was qualified as abandoned government property, perceived as arid desert wasteland. But the Japanese internees managed to plant gardens and turn sections into fertile farmland, making the camp pretty much self-sustainable. Eventually, some internees got work permits that allowed them to leave the camp because sugar beet growers in the surrounding region were requesting their agricultural expertise. The U.S. House Committee on Un-American Activities, which was founded to investigate disloyalty, actually attacked the WRA and the relocation camps on the grounds that they were coddling Japanese-American internees. As they claimed throughout the 1943 hearings, the camps weren't experiencing the same wartime shortages as the rest of the American public, which raised suspicion about where their food supply was coming from. In actuality, they were just growing it themselves. I'm curious about if there was a sense of home in the relocation camps, because I'd say the sense of home in a place is so crucial to making a city a city. How did the imprisoned residents make their prison more homelike? And moreover, would Hart Mountain therefore be considered a city? I wonder about that too. I think there are two definitions of cities at hand here. The definition crafted by the government and media who created the settlements and controlled public perceptions of them, and another definition created by the actual residents of the settlements. So the WRA created internment camps to bring supposed order during the war and control over Japanese American communities. But Japanese Americans, in an attempt to cope with their sudden imprisonment in a foreign place, reappropriated the community that had been forced together and made it their own. They emulated their home cities within camp walls, defying the confines of the prisons created for them. That's such a testament to their incredible resilience and their ability to reject socio-spatial restrictions, isolation, and segregation. Also must have been difficult to try to create a home when what would be the most private layer of the city, the house or the room, was shared in close proximity to others. Guards could freely enter the homes and rooms of the interned families suspected of crimes or those who resisted enlistment in armed services. The only thing that was in the room was a pop belly stove. 
that's the only thing you had to room, heat up your room, and uh, you had to put coal in there to keep it burning. Walls weren't very insulated, but you know, it wasn't much privacy because it was just a room. For me, uh, being a kid, it was okay, but I'm sure for some of the other people, you know, that were couples and stuff, you know, it was just a bare room, so and not, not much privacy at all. And um, so the only thing they furnished was a army kind of bed, you know, a cot, and a mattress, and some blankets. You had to go into a, a shower that's not private. It's uh, just uh, showers in one room, maybe about eight or ten showers that comes out, but it's all in one room, so everyone took a shower in the same place. Without physical objects and manifestations of home, including privacy and personal space, I'm sure many internees relied instead on the creation of a socio-psychological, cultural home, the more intangible human elements of a home that are created through communities' traditions, practices, and customs, which allow for expression, play, and solidarity in human connection. For my grandpa, as a 9- to 11-year-old boy, the Boy Scouts and general playtime really cemented the sense of socio-psychological home. All I did was uh, think about playing, so <laughs> we, everyone, you know, we had a lot of friends. We, we finally made a, they had things like Boy Scouts, so in our block, uh, we made a Cub Scout that I was in. To spruce up and improve their homes, imprisoned residents also used raw material scraps from the camps, received materials from people outside of the camps by mail, to create functional objects, gifts, costumes, decorations, and art pieces. Many of the art creations depicted the camp environment, and others gracefully portrayed elements of Japanese and American culture, like dolls made out of kimono fabric and Minnie Mouse pendant. In this way, they actualized an environment for themselves that, albeit with restrictions, served as a second home, and therefore a second home city. The internees continued to attempt to recreate a city and a sense of home up until the war ended in 1944. After the prisoners were released, this home, in all of its ways, was destroyed and abandoned with an abruptness that resembled their initial relocation and transition. Parts of the barracks were auctioned off for as low as a dollar to be used for garages or barns. And properties, assets, and possessions that internees had prior to their internment were devastatingly lost, misplaced, or stolen. A post-war survey would later show that 80% of privately stored goods were destroyed, stolen, or sold illegally during the absence of the owners. They lost everything. And I told you about the real estate person that uh, was supposed to take care of everything, and he said that someone came in and robbed the place and took everything. My mother came back to Los Angeles. She went to visit him at his house, and he thought she was somebody else and invited her in. And then the first thing she saw was the Persian rug on his floor and her sewing machine. We had to go to Chicago after the war because my father heard that there was too much prejudice going on in the West Coast. So my father went there. They were able to get a very it, it was really in the slum area. 
uh, she, he rented a uh, uh, hotel uh, room, and uh, they, shared, they shared it with one of our friends from camp. Although free, the imprisoned Japanese-American residents were ultimately abandoned with most of their possessions and assets permanently gone. Rampant racial discrimination still followed them at every turn, connecting urban segregation, poverty, and stigmatization in post-war America with the relocation camps. Journalists told the public that they'd all be safer once Japanese Americans were rounded up and contained in these camps. Yet at the same time, these newspapers worked to convince the public that those very sites of containment served as luxurious and desirable homes for Japanese Americans. News reports really sold this contradictory image. In 1942, the Powell Tribune advertised that the weekend before internees were set to arrive at Heart Mountain, the public could visit, quote, to bring their families and friends to the camp to see the city in a nearly completed condition. Unpacking the prison paradise dualism is important to understanding the impact of calling Heart Mountain a city. When these newspaper reports announced that internees would be arriving at a newly constructed city, it made their forced relocation seem normal, almost like Japanese-American families were just moving from one U.S. city to another. Yet, readers were also invited to visit the grounds, to ogle at the place where this supposedly threatened population would soon be detained for the safety of the American people. Through this strategic description, journalists depicted internment as something that could do the seemingly impossible, ensure the safety and comfort of Japanese Americans and all other U.S. citizens. Of course, we know that this reporting was fed by and in turn helped to form a set of ideas about justice, race, and spatial segregation and containment of the supposed enemy within. The alleged safety of the general American public came at the expense of Japanese American civil rights, which were overtly and severely violated in the relocation process. Yet, Heart Mountain did have all the makings of a city. They had institutions like schools, its own newspaper, a Boy Scout troop, civil rights and political groups, and even a successful agricultural system that was notoriously more prosperous than those outside of the prison. There were craftsmen and artisans who opened up their own shops. There was a championship-winning football team and cultural and community events like the Obon celebrations. Imprisoned residents even personalized their built environment and personal spaces. But when you pinpoint these as the components that made Heart Mountain a city, you find that these are all things built and maintained by the Japanese internees. In other words, the WRA and the US government didn't altruistically build the city full of all kinds of comforts and amenities for Japanese Americans to live in throughout the war. They uprooted these families and forced them onto arid, abandoned government lands. On these lands, the internees then designed an entire city for themselves, for survival, for sustenance, for education, and for cultural preservation. So when we look at Heart Mountain and other internment camps, we have to understand that it was not the U.S. government's benevolence or a part of its military strategy that formed it into a real place, a home a tangible, unique, and interconnected city. No, this city was built by Japanese-American resilience. <laughs>